We have a piece of a Hirsch over here. Uh, in this week's Parsha. Uh, we've spoken about this before, but it, it's important, and therefore I, th I think it's Kadai to... I don't think we've ever actually done it inside, so maybe it's worthwhile to try to do it inside. So Hirsch, when he talks about the midst of Stoka, which is found in the sixth Parsha, the Torah has various different elements of uh, describing the midst of, of Stoka. The, the, the Pasuk has a, a Pasuk of Pasuk Tiftach, there's a positive commandment to open your hand. The Son Titain, there is a positive commandment to give. There is two Isurim. Osama says, do not harden your hearts. Do not close your hands. So there's two Mitzvahs are saying, two Mitzvahs are saying. There's also a Pesach of, you should give him Deimach Soro, according to his needs. That he's missing. So uh, the Torah puts a very strong stress on the Mitzvah of Tzlaka. Um... The admonition of Pesach Tiftach, Nesoyin Titein, and Deimach Sero, and on the other hand, the warning, So the positive commandments and the negative commandments has produced the whole wonder of Jewish benevolence, which to this very day makes the scattered sons of the house of Jacob constituted into one great benevolent society for the relief, relief of the stress, to which every wretchedness in any Jewish hut and every, every heart can turn. The Jews are known for taking care of the, the, taking care of others. The duty to satisfy the requirements of the poor in every direction, Demach Saro. So the Torah says there's a council of Demach Saro according to the person's need. So I can't just give him minimally. I have to give him according to what the person needs. I'm not mukhib to make him rich, but I'm mukhib to take care of what his needs are. Has, on the one hand, brought about the necessity to make the care of the of the poor, a matter to be taken in hand by every Jewish community, for the purpose of which it is authorized to levy a forced tax on the on, on, on the means of its members. So the so the the, the community, the kahila, the more says is actually authorized that they can make a tax. Everybody has to give us give it to Stalka. Um, um, which the advantage of that is it guarantees that the money is there. The disadvantage of that is it changes from being an act of benevolence and uh, goodwill to being something which I'm, it's a tax that I'm forced to pay and it loses that uh, element of care which is there. On the other hand, makes this duty by no means accomplished by this, but opens up an entire noblest benevolent spirit of private and charitable deeds, voluntary relief societies. So we, we, we walk this dichotomy. We recognize that there's going to be a need to uh, collect money for Stockholm, and this need is going to be done, is going to be only accomplished if the community has the, the, the authority to force people to pay. On the one hand. On the other hand, we recognize that, that if, we, if we reduce it to that, you've you lost um, what, the whole idea of Stockholm. Um, the, da the task which the duty of Jewish tzedakah imposes is so serious and so great that only the combination of these three factors 
number one, the community, number two, the societies, and number three, the, the private individuals working together can come near to accomplishing it. For it says in the dorm, anybody who comes needy is not at once to have to apply publicly to the to administrator of public funds, i.e. the friends and the relations have first to see what they can do. In other words, it does not suffice as a community to make the deficiency up. For the need of those who become impoverished and are ashamed to apply for public alms, and the requirements which arise everywhere for special cases remain the finest object of delicate private benevolence. So it's better not to every time have to go to the to the communal um, charity box. Uh, but equally so, these purposes, can, which can only be served efficiently by the care of the community, schools and care of the instruction of the children of the poor, that belongs to the community. This has always, from time immemorial, been considered to be such so much a communal task that it is had become a habit erroneously, quite erroneously, to give the title Tamatara amongst obligations which lay in Jewish communities only to the provision for the destruction of the children of poor. Um, so the phrase became known that collecting money for Tamil Torah meant for poor people for Tamil Torah. Tamil Torah belongs to everybody, not only to poor people. Okay. So it's a fascinating question that my father-in-law and I used to talk about this a lot. That um, our the, the American the American government has, has undertaken the responsibility for many welfare uh, issues of of its uh, citizens. That wasn't historically the job of government. That was historically done by the by the religious societies. The church took care of people, etc. Uh, as the society has moved away from being religious and as the uh, wherewithal of the religious societies to take care of the poor has diminished, uh, it's been taken over by the government. Um, but what's happened is it's, it's moved from the, the, many times from the private mandate to become a public mandate. And, uh, you, know, we, you know, we read these stories about these politicians which are, publicizing their tax returns and looking at the amount of charity that they gave sometimes was, was fairly minimal. Um, but they're, they're very ready to vote that the government should be spending money on various charitable uh, needs. So it's no longer their personal responsibility, it's the responsibility of the government. So as politicians, they say the government should do this, the government should do that. But they've taken out of their their own personal responsibility that they should be doing something, that the government should do it. Right? So that, that's the danger that you have. Um, obviously, the government has a tremendous amount of power and authority beyond the individual to guarantee that they'll be taken care of. On the other hand, you should not lose the connection. He says, he continues, but there are two factors which the Jewish sense of benevolence, especially to thank for the manner and the idea in which it carries out its charitable activities. So there are two points that he wants to point out that, that sort of define how Jews give stock. 
Jewish thought is taught to look on the task of benevolence as stoka. The word stoka means as duty in the most eminent sense. One who does not help the poor to the utmost of his power commits a sin and is guilty before God. It says of him in the next verse. Um, so, if it's if charity is truly charity, which means it's, it's an act of benevolence, if I'm not benevolent, I'm not a sinner. I'm just not a nice. I'm not a nice guy. Right? I can't be called a sinner unless what I'm doing is something that I must do, and I and therefore when I don't do it, I have done something negative. So, if I'm sitting in, on on the bus, somebody asks me for charity, and I say no. In our society, nobody's going to say the person's a sinner. In the, the modern, the, the secular society that we live in, if you give him, you're a nice guy, or you're a gullible, however you want to decide. But right, but um, if you don't give, you're not a sinner. What the Torah is saying is that, depending what the parameters are, a person doesn't give; they're a sinner, which means it's not just a it's not just a good deed; it's a responsibility and it's a chiyuv, it's a duty. So, so the Torah describes it as stalker. Stalker means something which is righteous, which is right. It's appropriate. Now he said like this, but thereby charity is deprived of its protective armor of impulse, sometimes greater, sometimes lesser. We depend on feelings of sympathy and pity and of a personal appeal, and is relegated to the sphere of the strictest command of duty. So, two things happen. If it's based on my emotions, sometimes I'm more, I'm more moved, sometimes I'm less moved. This person's story tugs on my heartstrings more than this person. This person I don't like, I don't want to give him anything. But if it's a duty, it's not up to me. At the same time, the feeling of degradation is removed from the recipient. So the Jewish poor receive no alms, which is from the word, uh, uh, this is, I'm not sure familiar with the word, which means gifts of pity. It's not, it's not a gift. It's something that, that the giver is responsible to give. <coughs> and the deep inside of our, our sages, taking their cue from the Maishani law, has fixed the amount of this stock of duty to one-tenth, which is the first to be separated out of every fresh capital amount obtained, assembly from the income it brings each year. By this, every Jew has to consider himself an administrator of a small or large fund lying in his hands, dedicated to that to be used for benevolent and holy purposes, so that he must feel pleased when he finds opportunity to dispose of this fund, which no longer belongs to him, for the purpose of which it was entrusted to him. So once there's a concept of miser, so I separate the miser, I don't look at it as my money anymore. I look at it as I'm the, the trustee of this fund. I'm the administrator who has responsibility to give out the give out the money. So when I find the money, what I'm really saying is, wow, I'm, I'm so happy. I found somebody which will allow me to do what these funds are, are used for. So the reaction to finding an only uh, should be theoretically a positive reaction. Um, and I, I think... Theoretically, that it is. Um, the reason why 
I think people many times don't react that way is because there's a level of confusion. We don't like being confused. How much am I supposed to give this person? Um, if, he may, if, if, if he demands more from me or he requests more from me, am I supposed to give it to him? I could afford to give it to him, but then I can't afford to give it to the people behind me. So because this person leaves me feeling confused, I don't like being confused. It makes me feel uncomfortable. So therefore, I don't. I, I get displeased with the individual. But really, the person asked me for something that I, I'm happy to do. But it creates this conflict inside of myself. I don't like that. Or you have multiple people coming at the same time. So we feel, tend to feel overwhelmed. We, we read the Yishurim and we say, you know, I'm not sure exactly what I'm supposed to do with this, how much I'm supposed to give. It's all confusing. And we don't like that. Uh, Rabbi Nachman Seltzer has a story. I said, I don't, I'm assuming that he verified the, the story. It's written in the first person, which means it's a quote from a person who supposedly went through this story. So Mr. X goes, uh, he's in America fundraising, and he goes to meet uh, rich person A. Rabbi, Rabbi X is Mr. meeting Mr. A. And they make an appointment, and he comes, and Mr. A greets him with a tremendously excited countenance. So come in, happy to hear what you have, etc. And he's never really been greeted with such exuberance before when he's coming to ask for a stalker. Um, the person says, I'm really interested in what you have to say. Let me hear what you have to say. And he sits and he listens to him. In the middle of the conversation, there's a knock on the door. And he runs to the door. There's another onion there. And he says, ah, thank you so much for coming. And he greets him and he brings him in and he gives him something. And then after making the person feeling very, very comfortable, he leaves, goes back to Rabbi X. There's a knock on the door again. He says, while he was there, it happened five or six times. And he was extremely blown away and this is a this is a um uh a um fellow in his seventies running t- to the door every single time to greet and to be excited about giving stalker in an extraordinary way. He says like, you know, where did you get like this? I mean this must have been you've been you know, been like this since you're young, you know, you cultivated something like that, something like that. He said, as a matter of fact not. He was a survivor, the person who was giving the stalker came to America penniless and he decided that he one day he wants to become a lawyer and he got odd jobs and he pushed himself and he made himself through um, law school and um, and he did very, was very successful. So he had very little patience for collectors. You know, I worked very, very hard. I made my money. I'm not really interested in sharing with somebody else. Here you are, sitting in his office, and uh, he's been quite successful, and he has his own beautiful big office, and he has a firm. So the secretary uh, buzzes and says that there's two rabbis there to meet him. Um, and he says, um, what are the names of the rabbis? He says, one says his name is Rabbi Feinstein, the other one says his name is Rabbi Kenemanetsky. So his first reaction, obviously, was to run out that, you know, that Ramosha and Rabbi Yaakov were coming to visit him was extraordinary. And then he said to himself, you know, that's ridiculous. I'm not that rich that Rabbi Feinstein and Rabbi Kamenetsky are really visiting me. Probably it's two other people 
who realize they're not going to get in. The secretary doesn't have any documentation. So they they, they asked, what's the name? They said, Feinstein and Kamenetsky. But really, it's 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 really a Shapiro and uh, and Miller, you know. So I'm not going to run out and make a fool out of myself. So let them, you know, let them sit for a few minutes. So he continues reading one of his law journals. After a few minutes, he says, "Send them in." And in Walker, Marshall Feinstein, or Bravo Kamenetsky. And the fellow is devastated. He's he's pushed, he's, he's inside. He doesn't do it himself, you know. They ask him for the the, the cause. And he gives them very nicely. But inside, he, the chutzpah that he made Rabbi Yaakov and Rabbi Moshe, the Gedali Abdur, sit in his office. He says, that's it. I have to do tshuva. From now on, I'm never going to make anybody wait. I'm going to greet them in the best way I can possibly. And the writer writes the story. He says that this per- person apparently had, had mastered this because he never saw somebody greet a collector with such excitement and exuberance in his life. That's the story. Um... But I, I understand the, the hesitation. But what what Hirsch is saying is, once we have the idea of Meiser, when we and we truly absorb the fact that it's not my money, what Chazal have done is they've saved the tremendous amounts of embarrassments from the recipients, because it's not me giving you a gift. It's I, I'm the I'm the the. the the administrator of a fund which is giving out money which belongs to these people. So he's asking for his own money. So it's a it's it's, it's a totally different way of of um, uh, of uh, re- relating to the concept of stalka, which Chazal put in place. So I think it's a it's a it's a it's a fascinating thing. Okay, one more point that he says a little bit earlier. He talks about this mitzvah of demach uh, soro. In these two words, sufficient for his need, quote, that's what it means, the greatness of, Jewish, of the Jewish duty of benevolence reaches its summit. The want of the poor man is to be made completely good by us. You're not, he had so much civil you're not, you're not, you're not called upon to make him rich but what he lacks is to be supplied. And moreover, Asher low, with consideration to his particular position, what possibly may be indispensable to him on account of habits performed in his previous year, better circumstances. So Chazal said, while did, If this person was an erstwhile rich person, and he was used to a certain standard of living, the Mitzvah Stoker would apply to help him as long as he still feels that need emotionally and therefore it's a, it's, it's a valid need for him so there's a mitzvah to give him money for that purpose it does, it's not a priority you're not going to prioritize that over someone who needs food to live on but if, if that's not the issue I have the money available to help this person so Give you two, a few few expressions of this, and I mentioned these stories before. So, fellow in tells, who uh, was quite survived and without having a car for many years. So um, he drove, but he, he felt you know, from from where they lit, where the Carlo people lived to the yeshiva, there was really no need for them to have a car. 
And his wife, she got used to the dim not having a car, and she used to work out very well with all of the coordinate going shopping with, with her neighbors, etc. Okay. One day, there's someone in the car who, uh, his car dies, and he has no, he has no savings. He has nothing. He has no way to replace his car, and he needs his car. So, the guy's chipped in to help, you know, at least give him some money towards buying a new car. So, Rabbi so Rabbi Ploini, who lives without a car, was disinclined to give because, like, you know, I can live without a car. He can live without a car, too. And he said, well, that's what I was saying. I'm used to not having a car, but he's used to having a car. So for him, that is the mitzvah yes, So that's what he's missing. He's missing a car. Asking him to live without a car would be leaving him feeling impoverished. So there's a mitzvah to, to contribute, even though I can live without a car, but, but I have a mitzvah to contribute that he should have a car, even though I don't have a car. Right? That was the, his, his, his comment to me. I think it was very, very on target to the day of Asher Um Now, how far do you take it? Shayatim has to be truly missing. So, you know, I would like that my daughter should get married, you know, in the most expensive hall, and uh, and we should have a seven-piece orchestra, and uh, you know, and if you don't, at Stucco, I'm collecting Stucco to help me pay for my my million my million dollar chasna. It's hard to say that's called that that's that we call Shayatim. So, obviously, there's some element of of uh, the application of this. But the, the next story is a beautiful story. Um, so, in, when the, the, the real estate crash back in the, um, about 20 years ago, um, 20 years plus, so there was, there was Yidin who had been very wealthy and they had a crazy situation where you have this person living in this beautiful home who was getting getting the Tempche Shabbos packages for food to be able to have food for Shabbos because his he had totally crashed. He had So the house was the house, but um, he had no food. So there was one individual whose finances stayed very well he invested in different areas and he was not affected by the crash. And he was giving large sums of money to these individuals. And uh, when the person who helped him with stock asked, like, why are you giving such large sums? He says, you don't understand. So Ruvain, until a year ago, was quite wealthy. And on a constant basis, the people knock on his door and ask him for stock. And now they come knocking on his door and he's forced to say, I'm sorry, you know, I don't have any money. And they push him. You obviously have something. He's living in this gorgeous house. You know, they push him. And the whole thing is extremely embarrassing for him and extremely uncomfortable. So I'm giving him enough money that he should be able to have money to give to Stockholm. Because that's a shayachso. That's what he needs. That's what he's missing. See, he did this with multiple people. He gave him large sums of money to charity, to Stockholm, recognizing that these people need to be able to have the honor still and the self-respect of being able to give Stockholm. And that's part of our show, yeah, so that's what, that's, that's what they're missing. That's part of what they're, they're lacking, unique to them. 
So Chazal says, Philosus Lirkabulov, if I have a horse to find him, fellow needs a horse to ride on. I don't have a horse. I don't ride on a horse. I can live without a horse. I don't have an Evid who's taking care of me. So the, why this guy? I mean, it's stalker to give him an Evid. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's an extraordinary idea how Torah looks at stalker. Now, again, in priorities, it's not, it's not prioritized. But in regards to conceptually, this is something that the Torah respects as a need. And that's what he was used to at this point in time, asking him to do otherwise, is driving home the fact that he's impoverished. A person who was impoverished their whole life and never had aspirations for such things, or never actually had such things, the fact that they were like the one, they, they fantasized, well, I want to be rich, I wish I had it, that we're not mochayv to do. But here's a person who used to live in a certain standard, and now his finances have went sour. And he cannot live with that standard anymore. Maintaining the standard for him is part of the person's emotional, mental health to allow him to have, still have that equilibrium of not being totally um, feeling inadequate. Okay, now, I want to tell you a fascinating idea. I heard recently, I heard it from somebody who heard it and I do not recall who we heard it from. So I heard it from Ruvain, who heard it from Shimon, or the name of Shimon. Heard from Shimon the name of Levi, I think. That's actually how it went. But um, if that's confusing, that sounds it should be. Um, so he said the following idea. Now the first half is not directly relevant to what we're talking about. The second half will be. He says, we, many men are confused by the fact that, that women's need to be re- reassured from their husband how much they love them and th- and care about them and appreciate them that the, the, it, it's a deep-seated need to hear it mo- multiple times and it's a little confusing because like you know, the, the, the man has already said it multiple times and it's, it's there's no question that that's how he feels like why does he have to keep repeating himself uh, now the other extreme obviously is the person says there's a concept in Allah called Chazaka once you establish a fact it remains so so the husband tells the wife you know right after the chuppah so listen why don't you get very clear over here I love you very much I think you're wonderful I really appreciate you a lot now there's a dinner Chazaka from now on I don't have to repeat myself and uh, it's until anything changes I'll let you know otherwise we assume status quo so I still love you and I still appreciate you Right, obviously that's you know that's being a little bit extreme. Um, Sammy shaking head and saying that's obviously being a lot extreme, right? But but the but the fact that you need you know the other end is that the guy's got to say it like like twenty times a day. It seems to be a little excessive. Um, now I'm not sure everybody's experienced that type of uh, those those numbers, but we get we get the idea. It's a fairly um, and the person doesn't say it, like, you know, so you don't appreciate me. I, I said it 15 times today already. Yeah, but he didn't say it right now. Um, so he pointed out this this phantom individual, whoever he was, it's part of the Klola of Chava. The Puzzle says that, well, to your husband, you have a desire. And he's in control. So the desire here is not referring to necessarily a physical desire of intimacy. It's referring to this connection. There's a there's a there's a intrinsic need for the woman to feel connected to the husband, feel that 
that warmth of that relationship. And the husband is in control of it. The woman can't control it. That's part of the klola that Chava received. So it's illogical. Well, that's what klolas are. It doesn't make any sense, but that's how the version set up the world now, that you're stuck with this need. And then he said, so that's a Shalom Bayez Shmuz, it's not a, it's not a gay for tonight. And then he said, the man's klola is that a man is forced, he's cursed, he's forced to work hard to make a living. So this is the man's klola, which means the man well, is for, feels a pressure to do that and feels uncomfortable when he's not doing that. Even if a person has every good excuse not to be able to do that. But there's a, a man's self-esteem in the vast majority of cases is tied up very much to the idea of being a breadwinner and being a source of support to the family. And when he can't do that, he feels uncomfortable with himself. He feels he's diminished. He feels that he's less than, than a full person. That's part of the klolo, that there's going to be a need to feel that the person's in that role uh, again and again and again and again. It's illogical. Right? The person has a very good excuse why he can't do it. The person has some physical impediment. Such as, uh, but he cannot make peace with the fact that he's not really take, taking care of the people that he feels he should be taking care of by going out and working, etc. So, Part of that is to make the have the person feel self self sufficient. So Rama says the highest form of stalker is to create a vehicle that the person can become self sufficient. He could be, he can fulfill his And that's how you see the other end of the spectrum. You see people which cannot do that, and it wears away at their self esteem. You have people which are they're they're they're, they're, they're they have beautiful personalities and they're able to emotionally be supportive of any people, etc. But deep down, there's the discomfort with the fact that they're not really taking care of their family. And like, you know, you're doing such great things. Person, unless a person would work on it, person gets bogged, gets bogged down by that, that fact. Um, because there's this intrinsic need to feel that a person's in that role. So part of the is to help a person f- feel that they're fulfilling and and and, and playing out that role. The, the person, um, so the belt says, you know, you, you 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 give a person fish, you give him a meal, you teach him how to fish, right? you give you you've given him a life, or giving him a livelihood, you're giving him right an opportunity to go on Sammy's boat. Um, but right, so. But we're saying it's something else. What you're, what you're, when you're, you're, when you're giving the person the wherewithal, the tools that he needs to support, you're making him into a human being again, because he feels less than a human being when he doesn't, when he's missing that ability. Um, there are, are exceptions, people which are ex- exceptions to that, um, for various different ends of the spectrum. You're a person who's a tamachacham who's sitting and learning. He's not really supporting his family. But the reason why he feels good is because he is. He's sharing what he's gaining through Lima Natara with his family. So he's taking care of his family, not in a physical sense, but at least in a spiritual sense. Um, 
And then you have the individuals who are like, you know, they're telling themselves that they, they quote-unquote, don't care. So I'm not sure whether... I'm slightly cynical in regards to the fact that, you know, like they, they don't mind. Uh, but, but, but that being said, I think there's a certain amount of... Um, person can play with their nature and sort of uh, affect it negatively. I'll just give you one more thing and we'll finish. So in Archaim HaKadosh, in Parshas Barashas, he says, why did the Bershom not give the mitzvah of Puravu to women? Why is it only said to the man? Um, he says, from the point where Chava received the Klala, that Be'etzib Teldibonim that giving birth is going to be painful. The Bershom says he cannot give a mitzvah or puravu to the to, to the woman, because that would mean that he's commanding her to be put in a, in a situation of pain. So the do a mitzvah, be, she would be forced because of the mitzvah to do a, a situation which is extremely extremely painful, and it's not appropriate to give a mitzvah for that for that function, that situation. Okay, so now she has no mitzvah and it's very painful. So that's it. It's the end of the world. Nobody's, no women are going to have kids. So he says that the Russian instilled in the woman a nature that she wants to have children even though knowing that it's going to be extremely painful. So that counterbalances the pain. There's this desire. So a mitzvah can't, because the Russian can't be mitzvah, mitzvah won't be, won't be mitzvah mitzvah to cause stomach pain to, to, to the individual doing the mitzvah. But the Russian created a counterbalance that um, of of a desire to have children, which is so strong that women will, will agree to have children, even though she has no mitzvah. That's what he writes. You, know, you look around you in society. There's many, many people who claim that they have no interest in having children. And here, the Rambam is saying the Russian made a nature in the woman, which is so powerful. That she desires to have children even above and beyond any pain which she's go, which is going to ensue, um, and you see many women are like that. So what's with other women? So um, I'm not judging anybody, but you know there's a certain amount a person can change their nature, um, and uh, they they've convinced themselves for whatever reason that, that they don't want to have children, and they've changed the nature of the Rambam kind of saying that's the nature of, of a woman. Um, and instead, they've changed themselves. That that's not their nature anymore. So, the same thing over here: a person can come to terms with that he cannot be the one who's b'zeisabechol but it's definitely an avoda. It's not automatic that a person's able to be comfortable with that reality. Okay.